1: Hey, before we get going, I want to tell you about our sponsor today. It's Squarespace. Squarespace makes it so easy to open up your portfolio or your blog or just show off your work. You don't need anything more than a mouse. It's all drag and drop and it looks beautiful, totally customizable. Best part is you get a free domain. That's right. A free domain. If you sign up, you go to squarespace.com, put in offer code long form. You'll get 10% off your first purchase plus a free domain. Thank you, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Got a doozy for you guys. What you got, Aaron? Uh, this week on the show, we've got Al Baker, who is a crime reporter for The New York Times. Uh, he has a series out called Murder in the 4-0 that is tracking, or did track for a year, every homicide in a single precinct in the Bronx, which is itself, I believe, the uh, poorest congressional district in America.
2: I am excited for this
1: episode. Uh, It's a fantastic interview. His father was a police officer. He became a crime reporter. Uh, He's been doing this for over 20 years and has... We could have kept the stories going all night uh, from this interview.
2: Fantastic. If you wanted to... uh...
1: (laughs) Keep, the stories, keep the stories going all night. Keep the stories going
2: all night.
1: Keep the stories going all night. It sounds like, a, like an erotic fiction by email service.
2: <laughs> Look,
1: if you want to keep the stories going all night and uh, let other people in on these uh, all night stories that you're telling, uh, you're going to need a MailChimp account. They allow a business, a project, a podcast, whatever, whoever you need to keep in touch with uh, to maintain an email list and send out to that email list without all the hassles. Thank you, Mailchimp. You have so many fans for your all-night stories, Aaron. All-night story, the new season of All-Night Stories is going to be the best one ever. And now here's Aaron with Al Baker. Welcome, Al Baker.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Um, I was just reviewing um, the series that you've been doing. It's been over a year now, the the Murder in the 4-0? Right. Yeah. Um, well, actually, before before we even get into it, tell me what your original concept for the project was.
2: We wanted to understand how uh, murder happens in a time in New York City where crime is is low, historically low. Every year, there's a end-of-year news conference by the mayor and the police commissioner. For many, many years now, crime has gone down, and it's yeah. sort of gotten to a, a flat level of, of generally accepted low Percentage of crime, and we wanted to understand in those places in the city that haven't gone along for the improvements, what's happening there when when uh, one human being kills another. What are the forces driving? Um, what propels one human being to be at that moment and die, and another to be at that moment and be an alleged killer? And um, to sort of get behind the daily stories that we've done for years into the lives of the people affected and to examine what was happening in terms of society, in terms of the public services that they received, whether it's public housing or, and most particularly the police, you know, what the police are doing to solve these things and and what the obstacles are to to pushing crime down in this kind of an area. So it could be the same benefit, uh, receive the same kind of safety that the rest of the city has. I mean, crime in the South Bronx has gone down tremendously, right. um, but it's not as low and not as safe, clearly, as other places in the city.
1: When did when did you start out as a reporter?
2: Um, a long time ago. I've been doing this a long time. I got out of college in 1989, and I've been doing it ever since.
1: So you actually reported on a truly more crime-filled city, a city that had a legitimately much higher crime rate.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember I was a Daily News uh, reporter for the New York Daily News from 1993 to 96 covering police, and we would go each day review what happened on the overnight. And uh, in those days, there were handwritten reports that the police gave out called the sheets. And um, we would look at them, and there was typically five or six or, or seven murders each morning. And we certainly couldn't cover all of them. Um, we would, we would look through them and we would, um, decide, uh, which one should we try to tackle? Which one was perhaps most surprising or most compelling? And, and, and that's also part of what drove this series because, um, covering police and covering disorder, covering tragedy for so long, there's a language that the police use and there are code words that, um, perp and. Priors um, and those color your first analysis of of a death, right? And and color them in ways that um, you know we want to get behind,
1: right? When I've read about crime in America, um, you generally read one of two types of stories. You read about the huge macro story of crime in America, which is basically is crime up or down, which is almost always a political issue in this country. And then a series like Murder in the Four O is the microest of micros. It's a, a single precinct, one year, fourteen homicides. You have enough time and space to really look subtly and, and with detail into each victim and each perpetrator um, of each of those crimes. So I wonder how someone who does your job and has been doing it for twenty years, when basically the issue of is crime <laughs> you know, are we living in an American carnage or are we living in, uh, some of the safest times in human history comes up. How do you regard that question? How do you, how do you look at those macro crime statistics as a reporter? Do you look at them suspiciously or do you generally see them as accurate?
2: I, I wrote many of those macro stories for many years. Yeah. And, um, there was a a desire by reporters, by journalists, and myself, I was the police bureau chief for eight or so years at the yeah. New York Times, and every year I would write an end-of-year crime story that told the macro story and tried to tell it in ways that were somewhat more enlightening for readers each year, uh, focusing sometimes on the different phenomenons that, uh, that you could see from the macro statistics and i'm very proud of that work and um i don't see <laughs> having wasted my time <laughs> uh i i i think that that is you know somewhat of public service journalism in and 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 our contribution you know to the american experience you know to the new yorkers experience um, to reflect as accurately and with as much integrity about the portrait of crime. Yeah. Um, but the series really was, as I said, a desire to try to tell the micro story. Now, I think that um, it is true; it is undeniable that the level of of violence and disorder in America, writ large, or in New York City, is clearly down. You had in excess of 2,000 murders, 2,200 murders in 1990. Yeah. Now the, the annual numbers are 400, 300. Yeah. But I think that demands a greater... The receding tide of crime has allowed a greater inspection of the crime where it is happening, like Chicago or like this portion of New York City. Yes. And it's even more valuable to look at it some of these arguments politically are almost like straw men you know um, I saw something recently that was uh, police aren't shooting uh, wildly there's the, the myth of the uncontrollable police shooter because the level of police officers firing their guns in America are is down Right. Um, last year, there was something like 89, I believe, total discharges of firearms by police officers, 37 of which were in confrontations with other people in which they were facing someone with a gun. Um, that's far lower than the 1970s. Look at the number of police officers killed. It's lower. Right. However, we need to examine the situations in which the officers do use force. The low levels of crime have, have allowed a a closer examination in the cases where they are happening and allowing us to explore things that structurally um, have not been able to be explored. We can start to examine the implicit bias that police officers may harbor and not know. We can begin to examine some of the historical roots of crime, um, structural racism, um, the policies that are applied um, in certain neighborhoods and not others Michelle Alexander has written in the New Jim Crow about you know right. the uh, the war on drugs versus the heroin epidemic one's a health crisis one's a war um, and so I think the aspirations for citizenry for society is to reach further levels of safety and thus it's even more imperative to examine crime even at its lower points
1: yeah I I grew up in Berkeley but it's adjacent to Oakland which at the time was the murder capital of America in the 1980s and when you look at a case like a case like Oakland in the 80s or modern-day Chicago or even on a more micro level a single precinct in New York that is anomalously high which you looked at in the Bronx with this series what where do you start looking into that story when you see the three precincts next to this one, or the three major cities that most resemble this city, have very different statistics and are really have solved the crime problem more effectively. Um, wh- where does that story start for you?
2: Um, you know, we went in covering murder. And it was really quite novel. We we stated our purpose in the newspaper in the very first story, yeah, which was sobering. I mean, that's very rare in journalism. Usually, you do an investigation, you find the truth uh, in a certain area, and you report it. Yeah. Um. But here we were saying this was very organic. We're going to cover every time a murder, a homicide occurs. We're gonna we're gonna write about it and we didn't know if we would face a 2015 with one murder or 20. Right. We wound up, last year there were nine, we wound up with 14. So we learned as we went, and there's a lot of things informing our brains as we marched through the year. The first murder of Carmen Torres Gonzalez um, really exemplified the close-in living and the, the, the sort of crumbling infrastructure of public housing. The South Bronx has 14 high-rises, 14 public housing complexes. I think that's the first thing that sort of assaults your senses when you go there. They're almost like waves on the streets. They feel like waves. They feel like towering edifices, towers, in which people live very closely together. And um, they are, in many cases, we found disrepair. So, um, and the other thing that hits you right away is a sense of isolation that you can feel that the streets are very far away you're in a courtyard you're in a, another courtyard it's kind of a cascading series of, of tunnels or something that you're walking into and it's away from the streets the sounds of the streets and it feels in some ways so mammoth and so isolating and so many times elevator banks are not working so I think that's you know it's the poorest congressional district in America it has quite a number of methadone clinics which speaks to the sort of drug addiction that afflicts the area and the drug and alcohol use that permeates the area there's certainly you know stagnation in jobs I mean there is some gentrification on the southern end of it they're trying to gentrify it and um, to build the economy but it's still a place where a lot of cops talk about it being kind of in a time warp like 15 years behind the city or something yeah. And, you know, those are the things that you begin. Then, as the stories went on, we learned more about how these housing projects can become organizing principles for young men. And young men who are often watched, you know, their parents um, engaged in the criminal justice system or got taken from them at some point and put into foster homes or, or um some kind of uh, public living arrangement, um, mental health, um, the transition from a public hospital, Lincoln Medical and Mental Health Center, back to the homes. Is there is there enough support when you return someone who's got a mental illness back to a mother who's struggling and, and, and impoverished or has health issues of her own and can't work? And then on the street, there are the crews that have formed and almost as a matter of um, survival, I mean, so as each murder, as we covered each murder, yeah. our knowledge of it kind of built. And I, these are some of the factors that, that feed into it, I would say, why it might not be experiencing the same crime declines as other places. Yeah.
1: Um, for you, when you show up for that first that very first story in Murder in the Foro and you don't have a strong background in this particular area, this particular precinct, this particular housing project, what do you do? Where, where do you start when you're reconstructing the first crime?
2: It's very emotional, number one. Um, and as a general crime reporter, going back years and years, you know, I can still remember covering Flight 800 that crashed off of Long Island. And some of the things that stick with you are the way that they, you know, um, lined up the children's shoes that they found floating on the Atlantic Ocean or the backpacks um, on, a, on a hangar in East Mauritius on a Coast Guard hangar. So, um, but that spoke to the lives lost and that was um, the souls that were gone, you know, so yeah. to speak. And so you just begin there. I mean, you begin with the human Um when when a homicide happened, and it happened 14 times during the year, yeah. we would all respond to the scene. Um, me and my colleagues and a team of reporters, and you just begin to soak it up. But you're not, you're 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 collecting information, and you're you're sort of using all your senses to gather everything you can about it. Um, not for the next day's paper, not to try to make the best sense of it quickly, right? Um, but for the long haul, and to sort of put in a mini time capsule. And um, in some ways, uh, you don't know all the importance of everything you're seeing right away, but you just fill your notebook and you fill, you know, we use our iPhones and take pictures, which is a great tool that we have.
1: How long, when you say that you're on the scene, um, how long after someone dies would you be there physically?
2: Um, when they happened in the middle of the night, um, often my colleagues, Benjamin Mueller and Ashley Southall would go. Um, the one Maribel Cavero Reyes who died in the, in the daytime I, I happened to be actually in the precinct when that occurred. Um, and so within, you know, within hours, um, there's, a, there's a service that monitors police radios and they give out um, email notifications that are fed right from the police radios. And these are feeding through my smartphone 24/7. So the earliest indications are, through that service, which is a live radio dispatch, someone calling for a bus, Russia bus, or mail shot, or, and they give the address, very bare-bones information, yeah. often inaccurate, honestly, um, but, a, but a very good red flag as to severity. Yeah, And then you make some phone calls in the middle of the night, um, which I did often, text or call the investigators that we had um, developed relationships with or the fire department who might be sending the the ambulance or the police department's information um, office um, and triangulate in the best you could on um, whether it was a fatality or likely to be fatal and then it's just a matter of rushing to the scene and you know again like in any other reporting you just keep your eyes open you listen, you write down everything you see and hear, you take down people's names and phone numbers and addresses, you talk to everyone you can, you memorialize it all, and it becomes like a foundation on which to stand for the further reporting. The further reporting then is supplemented by our conversations with investigators. um, Over the coming days, what happened, um, who was the person, is there an arrest? Um, what was driving it? Is there a motive or several motives? Yeah. And those things begin to give you places where you can dig much deeper. Ben Mueller would often um, go into the court files, and once we had a victim's name, we would find everything on the public record about that person. and we could also find um, their address and we could find their relatives and then you go around and knock on doors and over time you build information. You build lots of information from several fronts and that was the real gift of this project and, and why, it was, why it was so fulfilling because you, we really felt like we could follow each thing as, as far as we possibly could till we were satisfied and that we, we really understood it emotionally and factually, obviously, and um, policy wise and and what it meant and and just how it fit into the the story of murder in New York in a safe age.
1: Hey, I'm gonna pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Whatever your next big idea might be, you can count on Squarespace to help you out with putting it on the Internet. Whether it's a portfolio or a store to sell your products, Squarespace has everything you need, including incredible templates, a drag-and-drop interface where you can make a beautiful website with nothing more than amounts, and great customer service if you run into any snags. The best part is you get a free, unique domain. You know sometimes you go to someone's website, and it's like not a unique domain. It's like some weird long string, not with Squarespace. You'll get the domain that you want. And this comes when you sign up. That's right. So you make your next move. You go to squarespace.com. You enter code long form. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. You will get the free unique domain and you'll be supporting the show again, squarespace.com code L O N G. F O R M. Start getting that idea into the world today. Thank you, Squarespace. Here I am back with Al Baker. When you're going through that, and generally when reporting alongside an investigation, it sounds like a lot of what you're doing is similar to what the police are doing and trying to reconstruct the crime what is the relationship between a reporter and the police like in the days after a murder like this
2: it definitely evolved um my uh, one of my first editors Kevin Flynn uh, was now a culture editor at the New York Times he would always say we were like detectives with a pen you know um there are a lot of Similarities in our efforts, we're both sort of investigators of a type. We don't have subpoena power, although the detectives would often say that that helped us, uh, because, uh, and certainly I think we got a lot further than they did in many cases with the relatives of victims and even people in in the circles of a suspect's life. Um, So I think in the beginning it was difficult. I mean, if there was a common theme in this series, that I would one theme I would identify is silence. Yeah. You know, there there was a sub headline once written, Seas of Silence, and um, you know, that one stuck with me. Um and it, it shot through, you know, victims' families, and it shot through the people on the perimeters of, of deadly encounters, and it shot through the police. It it it's not something that they're accustomed to having people paying attention to their work. Um, so closely, and um, it took time to build trust and to get them to tell more and more. And what was interesting about the organic nature of it also was that we would write a story and then we would go back to them, let's do this again. Yeah. And so um, we went to a, a journalism class once, and they asked very good questions. And one, Ben and I, and one one question they asked was, um, you know, how do you maintain sources in the police department, and how do you Maintain a sense of um, integrity and responsibility with other sources with civilians and people and families Who've suffered from the death of a loved one or their friends and you know the the clearest way to do that is really? The power of the writing I mean when we did these stories we would have you know 14 15 16 inch piles of paper from the notes, the transcribing the notebooks and the court files, and the public documents or the Facebook postings, or um, the feeds from victims who lived in Mexico to trace the arc of their life back to a home country, if it was an immigrant victim, as it was in the case of Roberto Rodriguez and Nadia Saavedra. And uh, for Maribel Cavera Reyes, it was Ecuador. Um, so we, we had stringers who went to their homes and we saw the impact of a death in the Bronx to a place across the world. Right. And, um, those piles of papers from that, you have to write a newspaper story. And we had the great blessing of our editors and the, and the newspaper itself to write long. And even then it was difficult. Even, you know, we found like we could have written double the amount for every story, at least in our minds, you know, So the responsibility of taking weeks of investigations and distilling it into a meaningful form that people could understand or find meaning in is a rigorous and necessary process. And in doing that, that helped gain respect with the police. You know, the police often looked at the stories and said, gee... You know, you went to Mexico and found wedding pictures of Nadia walking through the hills of Mexico in her white dress with her family and put that in the paper. My gosh, like, we we that's outside the scope of our aim to make an arrest and close a case, and yet they were touched by it. And even when we wrote some hard truths, you know, they respected it because it was truthful and it was explained in a way that made sense to them. And so I felt that with each story, that was the testament of our dignity, of our integrity, of our careful journalism. And so as time went on, the police came to see and understand exactly what we were doing. Because in the beginning, I don't think they believed when we said, we're going to write every murder. I don't think they believed it until they saw it. And they didn't even believe it in the first couple of times it almost took through halfway through the year to really say, oh, wow, they really are writing every story, and they're writing them at 3,000, 4,000 words. I mean, um, all of that in the mix built over time and um, allowed us to work closer together and to understand these things more deeply as we went.
1: Is talking to a reporter the same as talking to the police for people in an investigation? How do you, how do you tell people that what you're doing is different than... A police investigator, well, or is it different than a police investigator?
2: No, it's quite different. Yeah, yeah, much, much different. I mean, we we did some things that, you know, for me, who's been a reporter for for many, many years, I feel like I can say, from my speaking for myself, that I feel like we broke new ground in the landscape of of American or New York City journalism in some of the things that we accomplished here. And they're beautifully expressed in these stories, in my view. But, uh, you know, we talked with people who were in crews and gangs. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's a far different uh, proposition than talking with a, an investigator. And in fact, in, in, in one case, um, I don't want to get too specific, but it took us a long, long time to get people to speak with us, and um, it wasn't until our photographer, Angel Franco, happened to see the same people on the street. And being a great reporter with a camera that he is, he got into a conversation, and came to learn that that's when they believed that we were reporters. They thought we were federal agents or something. <laughs> Not New York City police because we were in plain clothes, but they thought you know they had us pinned for federal investigators, ATF, FBI or something, or U.S. attorneys or whatever. But then, you know, with Angel's blessing, then that allowed a whole other layer of reporting for us and conversation. So I think that this is a stew of an issue in terms of people are making daily and moment-to-moment calculations in the South Bronx that, that we saw around murders about their own personal safety. And part of the calculation is whether this force that they're viewing can protect them. And they saw many times, you know, when there's a murder in a public housing high rise, there's a body on the floor, Jessica White, in a playground at, on a hot summer night. Her children saw it. Her body fell by a bench, by a slide. You look up and there's hundreds, hundreds of windows representing potentially thousands of eyes looking down on that like a fishbowl. And the measures by which people living, as I said, in poverty and in these moms take their kids home from school and lock the door and don't come out till the sun rises, Um, but they're seeing it through the window and they can see that it's a scarcity of response. And then they measure that against the police shooting that happened in February when there were three helicopters in the air and spotlights shining down on them all night, and hundreds of officers with heavy armor going door to door to door to door to, door to find out who shot a police officer. Um, they can see the difference between a civilian death and an officer death. That's just one example. Yeah. and. You know, in some ways, it's not that they are angry, but that they worry that their life will be more in jeopardy if they cooperate because of all the other forces and gangs and crews and drug uh, operations and crime that are there, that they live with every day. And this army of this small force of people that they wonder or no can't protect them and you add to that other things like historical measures where inside those homes there's talk of the past 12 13 years of a very draconian sort of zero tolerance policing in 2012 there were you know 17900 stops of people in the 40th precinct, one of the highest levels of stop and frisk in the stop and frisk era of New York City, which was remarkable because there was lower crime across the city and yet stop and frisk. The number of times police officers stopped people to interrogate them and put their hands on them in in about half the cases to frisk them um, was remarkable. And here it was one of the highest levels of that policy. And um, 17,900, now 15,500 of those people walked away without any summons or any crime or any weapon being found, they were completely innocent, and they were mostly young people, mostly people of color, black and brown men, and uh, that was a policy that has lasting implications, you know, ramifications in families, in people's experiences, and even if the city is now trying to turn it on a dime, and reform it and fix it with special programs like neighborhood coordinating officers, that that's another experience. Then they look down the Alexander Avenue to this precinct house built 90 years ago and they see the degree of uh, scandal that has occurred there in terms of uh, in 2011 there was a ticket-fixing scandal across the Bronx in which this involved officers fixing tickets for their friends making tickets disappear and the punishments for those tickets were still being doled out last summer and uh, it's also a place where one of the few publicly known places that was reprimanded for downgrading crime, which is misclassifying crime, pushing it to a lower category to make it appear that it's safer. Yeah. And Lorenzo Johnson, the commanding officer of the 40th Precinct, was bounced from the 4 and lots of people were, were reprimanded. And Commissioner Bratton went there and said, you can't mess with the integrity of our number system, and made a big public showing of a corrupt action here so you know it's also the place with the one of the highest levels of civilian complaint review board complaints by citizens it's one of the highest levels of civilian lawsuits against the police so it's churning with a history of both corruption and wrongdoing and mistreatment and policies that are now changed and and then into that you know, when it comes to the very personal, intimate experience, a body falls, and this is part of the purpose of our project too, you know, a body falls, man, so-called man kills man, human kills human. In that most intimate moment, this is where some of these long-time grievances find a steam valve. and for one reason or another there's no speaking coming forward and the detectives the investigators they need people to speak to make the cases when jessica white died when she was shot a man um, seen on a video coming down the elevator walking across the courtyard sidewalk shoots runs shooting for someone else and she gets hit by the bullet and for her mother it was the third person in the family to die in that same con- tiny little spot in the public housing complex so the magnitude of loss for that woman is unbearable and to for her to look out the window and see you know a lone crime scene tape blowing in the breeze as we wrote is is um you know, is disheartening and, and everyone can see that. And, and so some of, some of the resource issues definitely play into it. Some of the feeling that, you know, other people we interviewed when they call police for help, they wind up in handcuffs for some prior minor violation. Yeah. There's a lot of immigrants in the community who have certain feelings about getting involved with the police, suspecting um, the police. So it's quite an issue.
1: Your father was a police officer. Yes. How, how does that play into when, when you're dealing with a police officer. You have uh, a full lifetime of history um, knowing people who do police work. What was your relationship with your father like around his work as an officer?
2: It was quite amazing. I, it must have been uh, <laughs> going to choke me up here. It's gonna, it, it must have been very difficult for my dad because um, <clears throat> he would, you know, he, he had a very fortunate career. He was a lieutenant in the emergency service unit, which is a sort of an elite unit. I mean, they, and he—he he was very devoted to his um, fellow officers. I think he knew that cops don't get sent out there with the tools to survive, um, whether they be verbal or tactical or even equipment. And I think he spent a lot of his time trying to work on that stuff. Um, he was very fortunate. There were many times where he should probably by all rights been wounded or dead. You know, looking back on it as an adult, I think I can see more of what was in his eyes when he looked at me and my brother, which was maybe just how precious we were or some of the fear of what the world had out there. You know, I probably somehow absorbed that kind of care and love. And I think that he he had a great influence in me in wanting to get the story right. He worked on overnight shifts. And I remember as a kid, I would look out the window and watch his taillights kind of disappear. There was a, there was a, um, I had a great sense of the danger he was in. And, you know, um, he, he his taillights would go down the block and the red of the, he had a little Volvo, old Volvo, like a 65 Volvo. And the, the taillights would, kind of come back and then disappear in some trees and i knew like the four brakes and then the last one and then he made a turn and i could hear the shift of the car like i can still hear it in my head and then it would as he got louder as the as he shifted from first gear to second gear to third gear and then it was gone and i said all right i'll see you know we'll see if he comes back (laughs) but uh and sometimes he came back with, I uh, remember he had some shotgun pellets in his cheek one time. He had been stabbed in the calf another time. And he would come in. Uh, what some,
1: what area was he working he in? He worked areas? mostly in Brooklyn. Yeah, he Brooklyn. worked in
2: Six Truck, which is attached to East New York, to the 75 Precinct, which that was one area we looked at to cover in this story. Um, but we thought that some of the narratives had been pretty well laid out and also it was a little bit unmanageable in the sense that they had quite a lot more homicides.
1: Yeah. You have a, um, both in your writing and and speaking to you, you have a poetic sensibility um, about these places and experiences and uh, one of the people I had on the show was one of your colleagues, um, Rukmini Kalamachi, who covers um, ISIS and terrorism for the New York Times and she was previously a poet as a career. and she talked about how when she starts thinking about a story, she thinks about it like a poem, like what are the indelible ima- images that are going to open and close this story? And where, what am I going to sort of bookend this information with? You both cover pretty horrific stuff. Like you both cover scenes that I assume are hard to get out of your mind afterwards. How do you draw a balance between the cold, hard facts and the and something like a poetic description or these, you know, more of a description of a place um when you're reporting one of these homicide stories?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. It really I mean, I'm very encouraged about Rukmini and, and poetry. I mean, I obviously I love poetry and there's you know, as a reporter and having been at it for so long, there's there's sort of I feel like these journalists who are spirits in my mind. You know, I remember Mike McIlary was a columnist for the Daily News and wrote a lot about cops, wrote books about them, good cop, bad yeah. cop, about Michael Dow. And Warren Berry was an incredibly great mentor. And when I was a child, he was a soccer coach and a columnist at Newsday and the old New York Herald Tribune. And he wrote a lead one time. He worked at the New York Times as well. He was a Western correspondent, and he wrote a lead of a story from Idaho. The lead said the locals call it buckshot rain, And then he just went on to describe it and so i feel fortunate that i've had you know joe sexton was the metro editor for many years and loves seamus haney you know and often would tell send individual reporters some of his poems and things and um you you definitely it definitely is a mix it has to be the right balance it can't be pure emotion i often feel like sometimes i am too emotional as a reporter Um, And I have to kind of uh, try to um, understand that and know that about myself. It's something about me that I adore, like that I cherish. You know, I love to feel. It's part of the human condition, whatever the feeling is. I mean, you just go through it. Um, But you also, you know, mix it with the truth, with facts. And I think they're equal parts. I mean, it's a balance. It's, It's hard to the details have to have meaning in the facts of the story they can't be you can't use the poetry and the emotion without reason first of all you're limited by space they they just they have to kind of do a job to keep the story moving you can't lose people in a newspaper story you you have to they they can't find themselves wondering why am i reading this right so y- you just tether them to the realities that you're writing about and in some ways, you don't have to work too hard, I think, because we're all human. We all feel and, and overly done, overly emotional is, is not very good. I may, I may speak overly emotional <laughs> at times, and I apologize for that. But I, uh, And I think also, uh, you know, a collaborative nature. I mean, you know, great, smart, amazing people at the New York Times, both colleagues and editors, think a lot about about these things. And, you know, we benefited from that incredibly, you know, Ben, Ben Mueller and I would, would sit in a room and hammer out a lead and then go home and he'd rewrite it and I'd rewrite it. And then we'd put that one together and he may curb some of my emotional tendencies. And I may add some historical police things from ancient times that he didn't, hadn't yet unearthed in the clips, though he did unearth quite a lot. Um, and so I think the blessing and benefit of great colleagues um, and feeling very fortunate to be on that team, that definitely helps. It helps to talk about writing. It helps to discuss it first. I mean, there were many nights where we would be at a, at a scene and, you know, your first impressions, we would be there late at night and we would talk about like, who was Freddie? you know Freddie Colazzo like why did he want to be in the forest houses what brought him back yeah and we would just talk about it he wanted to be home you know that's what his friends told us or why but why did he leave and what was the draw and what were the forces in his life One really trying to make make it and going to school and and yet still you know somehow couldn't get out of these entanglements and these complicated things that you know were in the background of his life that came back to to get him and you know we would spend hours days you know interviewing people on the street and find ourselves you know up on you know 151st street in Cortland or whatever sitting in the car in the dark you know near midnight or whatever and just start talking about what's important and what details matter
1: many of the people who committed these among these 14 murders are also people who very easily could have been murdered um, themselves people who are involved in drugs and gangs. And um, I was struck when I was reading it that that balance that you're talking about in that limited space, you also need to tell two people's story in that space, often not one person's story. How did you treat balancing
2: the victim and the perpetrator of the crime in these stories? I'm glad to hear you that you saw that. Um, I feel encouraged by that because um, you know, Kevin Biggie Thomas, who was one of the recent murders, we haven't we've yet to write three stories. Three murders occurred uh, that we haven't yet published and we're working on them. And one is Kevin Thomas and he was, he had been the victim of gunshots before and he had shot people before. And um, so he was on, as the police would say, you know, both sides of the gun. And ultimately he was killed on October 23rd, shot several times um, in the Mott Haven houses in the Southern portion of the precinct. But, I think that's exactly right. I mean, another theme that runs through these stories to me, and I could do a whole nother year on the children of the 40. That's that's is the children. There's got to be dozens of children abandoned by both dead parents and and siblings and by imprisoned or on the run or what, you know, criminally affected perpetrators. So, if you count the wreckage on both sides there's quite a lot of just kids just in one year walking around the earth with these horrific memories and heaven Irazari survived a knifing by her grandfather who killed her grandfather right in front of her the last thing her grandmother said was was run um and she did and she lived and she was stabbed five times but she had the courage to run upstairs to her uh neighbor who had cared for her and so the the lives of the victims in many ways often are unexamined by by the public entities by the police and so we felt a responsibility to tell their stories as well and the premise of the project was what forces are driving each person to that point Um, many of the victims had criminal records and many of the many of the suspects had lives that were underserved I think they would say or failed Felix volquez who who stabbed Miss Carmen Torres Gonzalez the very first murder of the year He had been um, someone with a history of schizophrenia who attacked a co-worker in a Manhattan restaurant with a plate and he was he was uh, prosecuted for that, but neither the defense attorney or the prosecutors really raised mental illness and then he had been treated several times. If you want to understand how it came to be that, a woman caring for her mother in a public housing apartment came to be killed by a, a man who lived with his mother across the hall you have to understand that man's life and the voices that he heard and how we targeted her and and that's an example of the poetry as well and the and the details supporting the story because Carmen's voice was a voice that this man heard Mr. Felix Volquez and he was threatened by that voice because he'd heard other voices. And ultimately, like her kindness and her speaking in this very narrow hallway um, to her mother's caregiver and sort of being in this common space, it was stunning because it was so close as to be a domestic killing and yet as much a stranger murder as you could ever imagine at the same time. But to understand that, you had to understand the perpetrator's background in history and what brought him there and the wreckage of, of the life that was created by his action yeah. um, it, it was equally important to me
1: do you have like ambitions to ever revisit these stories I was just thinking the biggest echo maybe it's the Bronx connections I remember reading um, Random Family um, Adrian LeBlanc's book um, which traces a bunch of people living in the Bronx through about two decades of prison and children moving different houses and you know um, it's a lot about the reverberation of how something that happened 20 years ago could lead to a completely different present and 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 in your stories it seems like there's a lot of reverberations the past and then these actions are going to trigger many things down the line
2: yeah absolutely yeah it's a great question Uh, you know I um... For the New York Times and for, for our editors, Wendell Jameson and, and Henri Kavan, to let us do this, uh, to give us this gift of, of long-form journalism, I mean, it's been, to me, probably the single most fulfilling thing I've done, despite all the sadness and emotion of it and the, and the subject matter being quite heavy and hard. Uh, and, that, and that's another way that we connected with detectives, was just by sharing that that humanity, you know how they how they can absorb these things and move on. But it's hard to move on. I feel a great responsibility in some ways to write more because I feel like there's a lot more that we know that we could say and we should say in some way. Um, now, whether that's now or later or 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 something, I'm not sure. But it was very intense. It was a year of our lives to yeah. to go through one thing. We were kind of untethered from daily obligations for the most part. There was a few things that happened during the year that we had to work on. You know, Commissioner Bratton resigned or left the police department, and there was a terrorist attack in Manhattan. Um, but um, it's hard to turn the corner and, and leave all of this. Um, so somewhere up the line, maybe we'll find a way to write more about it. Yeah. And we're certainly following things. We're following the police response and the city's response and the three murders, but we're also keeping our eye on um, the resource issue and the deployment issue in the Bronx writ large, in the the Bronx itself, some of the disparities that we found.
1: Outside of this special project, when you're doing that daily crime beat, police beat reporting, how has that changed over the course of your career? I mean, how is the job different for someone coming in today than it was when you started doing this?
2: It's faster. Um, it's smarter. I think. Um, I think journalism, you know, has made great strides. There's, you know, in the old days, you'd get. You know, I remember being at the Daily News and being a crime reporter, and you, you, we wore little beepers, and the desk would beep you and um you had to find a working payphone which could take 20 minutes and then you know you'd be driving around and maybe you were hot on a lead of a you know person you wanted to interview but you had to like go down a wider avenue a more commercial stretch and drive down it for a few miles till you found somebody who would let you into the back of their store, a dry cleaner or a bodega, you know, I remember many bodegas using their can I use your phone and, and calling the desk to get someone to tell you a new direction or a, a reporting goal or something or, or new information that came from City Hall. And there was just this much slower and everything was for the next day, you know, right. and so I think there's an, there's a nostalgia or whatever, but I think I think in many ways, you know, you, you, you look at that stuff and you could shudder actually at some of what was written and things. Um, I think the writing is is clear and uh, and now it's more nimble, it's quicker in some ways, it's smarter. The smartphones, you know, I, I mentioned Mike McAlary. I remember being with him at the Murrah Building bombing in Oklahoma City, and he was able to find out the current reading of the number of dead from the from the the bombing of the federal building by Timothy McVeigh and i was like how did you do that and he was on the internet this was 1994 he's like this is the internet and i do you know about this and i was like ah uh, not really he's like this makes you smarter i was like oh and i'll never forget that and i think that it does make us smarter that you can certainly find things and i think social media is great historically um just as a tool for history people are always posting things that Say, oh, you think this is the first time you've heard something like this? Well, look here in 1950 or 1970, this happened. And here's a lesson for us today. Don't think that we've not been through an issue uh, before, uh, you know, or, um, so I think it, us being more connected uh, digitally and, and things has great hope for the news. Do you,
1: do you see a difference? I had on this program, um, Cy Hirsch who worked as a um, police reporter in Chicago in the 50s. And he described the relationship between journalists and the police then as he was like, look, journalism was mostly a working class profession. The same kind of people became journalists as became cops. There was like a lot of, you know, a lot of drinking shared between the two of them. Um, And then he described meeting kids who want to be journalists today. And, you know, it's a job that's... uh, heavily full of people who can afford to spend a year at an unpaid internship or who can um, afford to go to journalism school, etc. Has the demographic of people who do this job changed in your opinion?
2: I think perhaps there's some truth in that. I I definitely think that some of the great traditions of, of journal, I agree that it was a blue collar kind of a craft i mean even from the way that the paper i mean there was hot lead and you know they called it the wood the front page because it was literally like when the the, cap, the letters had a, it was much, it was it was more of like building a fence than anything in some ways the the press men and the way that the, even that word um and yeah it, i mean journalism is uh of the people, I mean, it, it's greatest tradition. I mean, it's 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 a cornerstone to the democracy, and informed electorate needs to, to be informed, and so for it to reach the greatest numbers of people, um, it it has to be of the people. The the people who write it and report it and produce it must be a broad panoply of American experience, and I. You know, it's it's interesting. It's uh, you know, just between the police and reporters. I, I I feel like in in New York City, there was a great tradition of reporters talking with police and having a lot of interaction with 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 cops. And um, I think some of that has sadly gone away as a tradition again. Um, and 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 I don't know if that's a reflection of the reporting staffs or if it's a reflection of the way that policing has become much more careful I, I often think that the police are too careful I mean one of the one of the breathtaking things about this was that they let the men and women of the New York Police Department you know s- they spoke with us and we developed our own depths of trust and and I had quite deep connection to them for all these murders and um, I don't think the police understand the, well, they, they understand it, but they, they they don't let the quality of their human beings come out as much as they should. I mean, some of the greatest stories they have are in the lives and work of the people in the department, and they, they ought to let more of them talk more freely. Um, I guess that's kind of a bold thing to say, but um, the, the notion of controlling or spinning from public entities, and particularly the police, is not... I think it's self-defeating in some ways for them
1: do you maintain a, a lot of police contacts i mean is your phone full of police officers i mean after doing for this so long you must have met a good portion of the nypd over time
2: i have i do and i and i i've known them for so long that sometimes i can have conversations that are also emotional in terms of uh you know John Timoney died uh, last year and uh, he was someone i knew and covered and certainly a, a an incredibly inspiring figure within policing circles you know uh, you asked about my dad and i think part of being the son of a cop made me understand that pe- police are human and certainly having um grown up with a with a father who was a policeman Um, I saw the toll it took on him and, you know, watched him come home and put his gun in a little steel box that he had bolted to the ceiling of a laundry, of our laundry room and a a little, he painted it bright red and there was a lock on it. And it's the first thing he did. He came home, took his gun off, put it in the box, locked it, you know, and I saw cars come to get him, um, speeding state troopers came to our house and took him away for heavy jobs that he was being called to go into. Um, And just watched his, you know, and he also told stories to my friends. My friends would always say, tell a story. He'd tell the story about the dog on a board on a a middle of a six story building with no windows. German Shepherd just walking back and forth on this plank of wood that I guess a painter would use or whatever, but how did the dog get there? and the time a monkey threw one of his partners, a lady had a monkey in Brooklyn, and it <laughs> threw his partner around, and I think it ended his career, and these were some animal stories that were the children of the neighborhood found interesting, and then there were sadder ones as well, you know, um, time he went down a, an elevator shaft to save a, a troubled child, uh, um, teenager, and uh, got stuck in the shaft with the kid, and the kid, like, beat him up and pulled his hair out, and you know, my dad just had to hold on to him and until they could break the wall and get him out. And um, so I have all this sort of experience, th- thankfully, through the generosity of my my father and, and his life um, to inform me about policing. And yet, at the same time, I often feel I worry that I'm too close to it. You know, I... <laughs> had a, um, poster in our, in our basement. My brother and I used to use as a backstop for pitching. We'd play w- like wiffle ball in the basement. And, uh, it was the target for the police range the the figure that the police shoot at to test their efficiency with shooting. And that was in my basement my whole life. Yeah. And a colleague of mine, Michael Wilson went to the range one day and he saw that thing and he's like, what's that? And he wrote a story about it that was incredible. And it was turns out it was called The Thug. And he explored some theory, themes in that in that story that were so true because he said that he wanted to find the model for the uh, for the target. It was a man standing there with a gun in a, and you shot at him to qualify for for your weapon. And uh, he wrote in the story how everybody thought it looked like everyone. It was sort of a generic look of a. A white male in in the in the nineteen sixties and seventies with the mutton chop sideburns and stuff. Yeah. But me and my brother said it was my dad. We said that looks like you. So the <laughs> the things he found in the story were. So um, yeah, I, th- I think um, I think I worry at times that I need fresh eyes or I'm I'm close to things and and I have to always remind myself is that new or. Am I seeing this correctly? And I think that helps me in some ways. Or I'll talk to people about it.
1: It's a very real question. You had talked earlier about you know the the pre-internet tips and tricks, which is something that um, takes many years to build up that kind of a knowledge. But I've also talked to people who on the show who do um, things like war reporting and say like you know don't do you don't do it after forty. You got you know you got to stop at a certain point. It's both addictive and it like changes your perspective on what it is um, what what do you want to do from here what's next for you
2: oh um, well I want to keep writing and keep you know expanding law enforcement coverage um, yeah. and maybe think about revisiting this and um, I want to write more long-form things because I really enjoyed this um, process um, you know the world is everywhere when I was a younger reporter, I had a goal to be a foreign correspondent and my life worked out in a way that I haven't yet made that decision but my wife said to me, you know you you did want to see uh, places in the world that were in extreme duress and suffering and you you talk about you know feeling like you have the 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 strength really and the and the um and the understanding of the responsibility to cover things that are quite grave and to try to, as best you can, to make a contribution to our our world by shining light on it. You know, that's what you've decided to do and that's what you've always aspired to. And, you know, it's funny that at this point in your life, I'm 49 years old, and she's like, you know, it's sort of you found kind of like that situation right here in New York in a way. And I think in many ways that's true. I mean, the world is everywhere. It's right here where we're sitting. It's the corner outside the building. It's the Bronx. It's, it's um, a foreign country. You know, um, there's, there's a lot of commonality in humanity, and obviously, and, and so I, I, I just, whatever I do, I want to bring the greatest level of respect and hard work, ethic, and um, a search for truth that I can.
1: Well, um, thank you very much for this interview. This was very interesting. Thank you. And that was the long form podcast. Uh, thank you very much to Al Baker for coming in. Thanks to our editor Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our intern Courtney Harrell. Uh, thank you to our sponsors Mailchimp and Squarespace. Again, that's squarespace.com, offer code LONGFORM, 10% off and a free domain name. Thanks, Squarespace. Uh, We will be back here next week. If you want to help the show out, hey, maybe rate us on iTunes. That helps it go up the charts and helps more people find out about it. Okay, thank you. We'll be back. Why
0: do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running.